Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Um, I have this message to deliver. Uh, thanks for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium uh, one final time. And so just really grateful to be able to gather with you guys. Uh, for those of you that are joining us online, thank you for bringing the, the church uh, into uh, your living room, dining room, wherever you happen to be. And so it's been a joy to be able to, to gather, uh, not only this morning, but literally for 12 plus years now of faithfully just seeing Jesus be so faithful to his church. We'll talk about that more in just a moment, but I'm grateful to be able to, to preach the gospel. And so as we're wondering what to do on our final service here, as Eric made mention of earlier, like we're just gonna try and get after it the way that we typically do of like open up the Bible and let's, let's see what Jesus has to say to us and what Jesus wants to do in and through us as his church. And so we are continuing this series uh, that we began a few weeks ago called Come and See. And it's through this journey through the Gospel of John, the, the book of John. And if you'd like to follow along, I would encourage you to get your phone out. You can go to cpwp.life uh, and wipe over so you see a card that says message notes and you can follow along that way. So I wanna go ahead and just read our text this morning. We are getting near the end. We're taking a, a bit of an extra time through chapter one because it really sets the trajectory of this entire book and then things will start to pick up the pace a little bit in the weeks ahead. But for this morning, we're gonna be in John chapter one, verses 19 to 34. So if you got a Bible, please turn there. And again, you can go to cpwp.life and follow along on the message notes. You'll see the text there as well. But John chapter one, I'll read these words and we'll make our way through this this morning. Beginning in verse 19, it says this, this was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. Well, what then, they asked him, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then? So they asked the question again, verse 22. They asked, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. And so they asked him, well, why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? And John, this is John the Baptist, replied, I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. And all this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. In verse 29, it says this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, he's like, behold, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who actually ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he, he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. 
So we'll make our way through this text, and there's some really fascinating things that happen in here. One thing, just to keep in mind, because it can get confusing, we got a, a book written by the Apostle John talking about this guy named John. He's not talking about himself. This is John the Baptist, the one that was this cousin of Jesus that was born about six months before Jesus, and we're gonna look at his life in a bit more detail. He's been introduced to us a bit throughout chapter one already, but there's this question that a group of people begin to come and, and ask because here's what was taking place. Um, John was drawing a crowd. There was something compelling about John the Baptist. Now, I don't think it was because of his outfit because apparently he wore like these kind of you know, camel-haired clothes kind of thing, um, and then he apparently ate like bugs, like locusts and honey, right? So there wasn't probably anything, in fact, that was probably like, Who's the freak out in the wilderness, out in the desert? But it had to be more than just this kind of weirdo out there. Like what was so compelling that people are going out to him? Like there was something winsome, there was something, there was some sort of draw. And what we see in this text, and I think this is where it's so incredibly relevant to your life and to my life, is what the draw was was a man who was confident in who he was, like in his relationship with God. He literally didn't operate with a mindset of I've got something to prove. He had this rock solid, like he was anchored in this reality that whatever happened, whatever people would come and say, people that would love him and revere him and people that would try to kill him because John ultimately lost his life because he stood up to the king in that land, to what that king was doing, who gave lip service to being a follower of God, but acted in horribly despicable ways. And John called him out and got himself beheaded. But it was this man that was just so confident, not in an arrogant way, but there was something he's just like, hey, I've got this calling from God and I'm committed to it. Like, wouldn't we love to have that sort of clarity where it didn't matter what was happening, what was swirling around circumstantially, like we just knew God loves me, God cares for me, God has given me a work to do. Because the question that people ask John is this, they're like, who are you? Like the question behind the question is like, how, how are you this way? Like, how are you able to do what you're doing? And that question, that sort of existential question, I think is worth us asking. If we're gonna see where we are in this story, what God might be trying to speak to us, I think it's helpful for us to ask that question. Well, who are you? Where's your identity? And I don't know that we love to ponder those sort of things. Maybe we have these moments of kind of an existential crisis. And I think if we're honest, we try and push past that. We try and busy ourselves. We don't want to stop and ask that question because it feels a bit too raw. What if we don't like the answer that we find, if we would probe that a bit more? But it's of utmost importance that we stop and we allow this text and this whole book of John and really all of the scriptures to be this mirror that's put up and it helps us answer this question like, who are you? And it's a question I think we all wrestle with. I mean, I have been wrestling with it, um, I mean, I once had my entire life as I think all of us do if we're honest, but in particular ways, even as recently as last night at about 10 o'clock, I said to Heather, all right, I was like, um, hey, I'm just, I just need to get out of the house for a little bit and just go for a walk and kind of clear my head. And it just, as you can imagine, like just sort of like the exciting things, but the busyness of what the last few weeks have brought. And I just don't feel like I've been able to, to think super clearly. Um, and so I was like, all right, I'm taking the dog and we're just gonna go for a, a walk uh, for a moment. 
And as I was out on this walk and just sort of taking in, there's a little bit of a cool breeze and it was nice, just sort of reflecting back on really trying to like not miss this moment, like not miss what God has done over the past 12 years, even where we are this morning. And I was, I found myself just sort of reminiscing back to our very first service that happened here in this YMCA gymnasium literally 12 years ago and one month, all right? We happened to be actually in the fitnasium is where we started before we moved into here, but here in this YMCA. And I remember those moments, like in those weeks and months even leading up to, and then the, just the flurry of activity in the days leading up to the launch of a, of a public service. All sorts of excitement, all sorts of enthusiasm, and if I'm honest, all sorts of trepidation, like all kinds of fears, like wondering, did I really hear God right? Like, did he really want me to go plant a church? Like, was this just nuts? Did I just, was it was like some bad pizza that I ate? Like, what, like what's, what's going on here? And I remember going into that service and just wondering, like, is anybody going to, to show up? And then if those people do actually show up, like, are they gonna stick around? Like, what is this thing that's going to happen? And wondering, like, where this all would go. And God, by his grace, has been so incredibly, Jesus has been so incredibly faithful to continue to be with us and to allow us to see people, all of us included, week after week, pointed to Jesus, to see lives transformed, to see people connected to the real Jesus. And so I was reflecting on that, and I found myself sort of you know, just praising God and thanking him for that, and, uh, and thinking back in those moments, too, that just felt sort of vulnerable and sort of just kind of out there and, uh, and just kind of um, wonder, feeling a bit of insecurity that I know I felt 12 years ago, and then reflecting on like this day and the days ahead and feeling like, wow, a lot of those same feelings, I felt like we're sort of rushing back to the surface, if I'm honest. And I don't know if in leadership you're supposed to just project like, nope, got it all together. I heard the voice from on high. God said, go and do this 100% confident. Just go and, and follow me. Um, if you're looking for that kind of a leader, that's not who I am, all right? And I just remember having the, these moments and just thinking on this last night, again, just, just asking like, okay, in this transition and in this change, like God, like, are you gonna continue to be faithful? Like there's this, this moment, I would say, um, I wrote a couple things down here that just this question of like, 12 years ago, asking, God, do I have what it takes for what you've called me to? And then as we think about this change and this, this transition, God, do I have what it takes to lead this change in this transition? And it was as if God last night, as I was kind of walking back to the, the house, was reminding me, which this should have been apparent earlier in the week, it took about till 10 o'clock last night to say, hey, you, you know that sermon that you've been working on this week um, and the things that you're seeing in there, you know, like, it's fundamentally about this idea of like, what are you gonna rest in? What are you going to trust? Are you gonna trust in yourself or are you going to actually trust in the God who invites us into this whole new way of living, this whole new identity, this kingdom work? And it was God's spirit, I think, just bringing this comfort to mind, just saying, hey, I've been with you, I'll continue to be with you, and at the end of the day, I actually don't need you, I don't need Crosspoint Church, it's a great joy that we get to play, we get to participate, we get to be on this adventure together, but at the end of the day, there's this reality that Jesus is Lord, and he's sovereign, and he's good, and he's the king, and he is going to build his church, and we get to be along for that ride. And so as we ask ourselves this question, as I ask myself the question, like, who are you? I gotta keep coming back. Like, it's this constant battle to remember, 
I am a son of the king. I don't have anything to prove. You, if you're a child of God, if you're a son, a daughter of the king, like you actually don't have anything to prove that you are loved by God. But it is interesting, isn't it? In all the challenges of life, even the exciting things of life, it's so easy to lose sight of that. And so this passage, I was gonna say it's gonna help us. I know it is helping me, and I pray that it helps you as well. In this idea of living a life of, of wisdom, John Calvin, all right, at the beginning of his massive work called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, it's very long, all right? I was supposed to read it in seminary. I read bits and pieces of it in seminary. I do know though I read the introduction and it has these profound words, okay? Uh, it says this at the very beginning. It says, nearly all of the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, he says, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. You wanna live a wise life? Pursue this, like knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. And it's this text I think is gonna help us with that. And so we'll, we'll kind of flip the order of that. I think what we see here at the beginning is this invitation to know yourself in the truest way, not in the sort of pop psychology way that's out there, but what does the scriptures actually have to say? That we would know ourselves and then that we would know Jesus. So two-part sermon, all right? Just two points. Know yourself, know Jesus. So let's get into this. Verses, we'll look at verses 19 to 28 again, all right? And what John does, he's got this group of people that come out, right? And they're asking questions of identity, like, who are you? Now, look here, John makes three declarations right off the bat. This is so helpful for us. He starts out by acknowledging who he's not. I wonder how much better you and I would all rest if we understood like who we're not. Like, we're not supposed to be Lord, we're not supposed to be sovereign, we're, we're not supposed to be limitless. We are actually people, all right, human beings that we need to rest and we need relationship and we need food and we need some downtime and we need all these things. God doesn't need to rest, God doesn't need to take a nap, he doesn't get tired from his responsibilities. He is sovereign, he's good, he's the king. And I love that John is so quick to say, nope, that's not me. I am not that. And the things that he rattles off in these verses, I'll read 19 to 21 and then verse 27 as well. He's like, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet, and I am not worthy. So again, this is John's testimony. Verse 19, the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him. They send their, some of the you know, religious leaders, who are you? And he's like, I am not the Messiah. Now, I don't know that you and I woke up this morning like wondering, oh, you know, I was, I was debating this. Am I the Messiah? Am I not? Like, I, it should be pretty clear that you're not and that I'm not. But again, if I think back on the things that create anxiety and the things that create a lack of peace and the things that might keep you up at night, the things that might cause you to go for a walk when you should probably be in bed, like those sort of things, it's a failure to embrace this to its fullest extent. It's a failure to realize that no, Jesus is the Messiah and I'm not, I don't have to be the savior. You don't have to be the savior. You don't have to fix everything. Like he's actually got that under control. You don't need to borrow the things that are on his job description and say, hey Jesus, I'll take that off of your plate. He's like, no, 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 no. Please do not take that from me. You can't do it anyway, but don't even try. John, part of his confidence, part of the draw is he's so clear to point out, no, I'm not the Messiah, all right? 
And then they ask him, okay, well, if you're not the Messiah, there was this word, because if you know the story of Elijah, this prophet, right? He got taken up into the heavens. He didn't die the death like most people do, all right? And so there was this promise that one would come back and in the spirit of Elijah, all right? And, and so they're wondering, well, okay, is that who this is? And so they ask him, all right, are you Elijah? And again, I am not. Now, what's fascinating is Jesus later on would actually refer to John the Baptist as Elijah. So it's as if John the Baptist is sort of even unaware. And I think that's part of the beauty here. I think part of the reason he can live the way that he is is like there's, there's no sense of like hype or entitlement. There's no, there's no drive for him to, have, to be an influencer, to have a platform, all right? As we'll see a little bit later in this book, even John's own disciples are freaking out. They're like, they're all going over to Jesus. The crowds are going with him. And he's like, great, that's how it's supposed to go. He's supposed to increase and I'm supposed to decrease. Did you not get the memo on that? Like he's got this just great posture. He's like, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not. Elijah, all right, and they're like, well, are you the prophet? And again, this is from the book of Deuteronomy and this, this kind of obscure passage, there's just this one spoken of as the prophet that would come on the scene. Maybe this kind of catch-all term of like, here's this one that's gonna bring all this sort of influence. He's like, no, that's not me. And then if we drop down to verse 27, we get another I am not statement, all right? And he says, he is the one that's coming after me whose sandals, I am not worthy to untie. So he gives this phrase, right? They probably, didn't, they probably weren't sandals that look like this. But the dirty feet would have been part of the deal back then, right? Like maybe you think your feet got gross, get gross wearing sandals around here, but it's just like just the, the grime and the nastiness of a street in the Middle East a couple thousand years ago and all that that would have entailed. In fact, People's feet were, be so, were so disgusting that even the lowest of the low, the lowest servant, the, the slave, all right, it wasn't even on their job description that they would have to actually remove the, the straps of the sandals. Like, people kind of got it. They're like, dude, we're not even gonna make you do that. And then what's John's disposition? I'm not even at a level that I could even aspire to be one that would untie a, a, a sandal, to undo that strap. He's got a humility about him. It's not a false sense of humility. He just has this, this nature about him that he knows he doesn't have a savior complex. He's like, I've got a particular role to do, and there's this humility. He's one that understands what he's been called to do. Now, in this, again, Jesus gives some fascinating words about John the Baptist. So John's like, hey, I'm not even fit to untie. He's talking about Jesus' sandals. Like, I can't even do that. But in Matthew 11, Jesus says this. He says, truly, truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. All right? But the least in the kingdom of heaven is actually greater than he. Isn't that interesting? So we have all these discussions all the time, like turn on any sports channel, right? What was the talk if Tom Brady won another Super Bowl, right? Like, is he the GOAT? Is he the greatest of all time? The answer, of course, is yes. But anyway, like, you know, there's, um, there's all these questions that we always want to debate that. Or is Michael Jordan the GOAT? Or is LeBron James? Or is Kobe Bryant? Or like, there's all these conversations. And I love that Jesus just lays it out. He's like, you can have those silly conversations. You want to know who the greatest of all time was? Those born of women, all right? Born of a woman, right? He's like, John the Baptist, like that, that settles it. And then yet what Jesus does is he turns it completely upside down. He says, but in my kingdom, he's like, the least in the kingdom of heaven is actually greater than he. 
So the more we are on this downward trajectory, the more that we understand our need, the more we understand our brokenness, the more we're aware of how deep our sin problem goes, the more we're in awe of who Jesus is. That's what greatness actually looks like. So it's not counting the number of likes or the amount of influence you have or how much money you make or what trips you get to go on or how many people like you or how many people report to you or any of that stuff. Greatness comes from a humility, a dying to self, a taking up your cross and following after Jesus who left everything. So you wanna be great in the kingdom? John's showing us the way to that. He's ultimately showing us the way of Jesus. And so he says, I'm not these things. But then he does say, all right, I am a couple of things. And the first thing that he says, he's like, I'm a voice. And he doesn't even say I'm the voice, but he says, I'm a voice. Now, the voice, listen, it's the words that matter. We, what have we been looking at in John chapter one so far? If you've been here the past few weeks, Jesus is the word. Like the word is what it's important. And he says, I'm a voice meant to proclaim the, about these particular words and about the word that is Jesus. But look back with me at verses 22 to 23. He says this in answer to the question, who are you then, they ask, because we actually need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? And he goes, Old Testament reference again. He says, okay, I'll tell you. I'll tell you where my identity is. I'll tell you what my role is. I'll tell you what my purpose in life is. I'm a voice. He begins to quote Isaiah chapter 40. He says, I am a voice He's just lifting this straight out of the scriptures of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. This is a reference to Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. Now what's interesting and what I've been trying to highlight over the past couple of weeks in chapter one is there's Genesis language all throughout and then there's also Exodus language. There's this language of God liberating his people and John is trying to take us back to that and saying, this one, this word, this Jesus who's come on the scene. We've been enslaved, we've been trapped, we're dead in our sin, our brokenness, our rebellion, and God is liberating us. That's what Isaiah 40 is about. So yes, he's quoting Isaiah 40, verse three, but to a, a good Jewish person of that day, when any time a verse would be said, they know the context before it, they know the context that comes after it. So it's a way of saying, hey, I'm just gonna give you the shorthand right here, but you know this passage, right? Now, we may not necessarily know it, so let me fill in a bit of the details. The first two verses of Isaiah 40 say this. Comfort, comfort my people. It's a word that's being spoken as God's people have been taken into captivity. The Babylonians have come. They've destroyed their way of life. They've hauled them off. They've killed their loved ones. And God says this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's a way of God saying, your sin was great, but my grace is greater. Like, you can't exhaust the grace of God. You may have had a terrible week. You may have a terrible week ahead. You may sin in some magnificent ways, some sins, like sin in some ways that are so profound they write books about you. At the end of the day, it does not come close to exhausting the grace that's available to those that have trusted in Christ and repent of their sin. It's not to just live it and say, I'm gonna celebrate my sin and my brokenness, but there's this repentance. And so when John says this, this story would have been in the background. Oh, is this what God's doing? Is he bringing liberation? Now, of course, they had 
associations of that about what God was gonna do with the Romans, and there's something so much better that's happening. He's saying, I want to liberate you. In his commentary on Isaiah, Ray Ortland, this uh, is just a magnificent work, he, he talks about this, um, this particular passage. He says it this way. He says, God's deepest intention toward us is comfort. How could it be otherwise? If the focus of Christianity were our sins, our future would just shut down. But in fact, Christianity is all about the saving grace of God. He overrules our stupidity with his own absolute pardon through the finished work of Christ on the cross. Do we sin? Well, yes. Do we suffer for it? Yes. Is that where God leaves us? No. When his discipline has done its good work, God comes back to us with overflowing comfort. See in God, not a frown, but a smile, not distance, but nearness. So John comes on the scene. He's like, I need you to know that God is near. And the word that was spoken a couple thousand years ago, guess what? Like, I need to know that. And I know you need to know that, right? That God is near in whatever it is that you're dealing with. And he wants to bring liberation. And sometimes there is difficulty. There are things that he's doing because he loves you as his child. There is going to be discipline, but it's not because he doesn't want anything to do with you. It's because he's actually trying to get you to see your need of him. So John then quotes Isaiah 40 verse three, a voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make a straight highway for our God in the desert. It's this language of like, clear the way, like the king is coming, liberation is coming, like get on board with this. What was John's ministry? He's calling people to repent and baptize, be baptized. Repent, acknowledge your need. Do you think you're awesome and just got it all figured out? Like repent of that arrogance. How dare we operate as if we don't need God. And then the verses that follow are these words of promise. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He's getting things ready. Now, if you're like, man, I like the mountains. It's like the rest of, you know, is heaven all like Kansas? I don't think that's necessarily it. No knock on Kansas. I'm just saying like, his point is this though, like to travel or to be smooth. Like we're just like, wow, you have this clear view of what's happening. It's like, this is what God is doing. And so John says what? I'm a voice and then I've come to baptize. He is a baptizer in water. And this is what we hear in verses 24. He'd been, the Pharisees, you know, um, or sorry, this group says we've been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, why do you then baptize if you're not the Messiah? You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. And he's like, I baptize with water, John answered them. And someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He's the one coming after me. We looked at this a moment ago, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. And it tells us all this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. What do we do with this? Like, why does he call attention to it? And one of the things, won't spend a lot of time here, but I think is helpful, as he's just acknowledging there's these everyday, like kind of ordinary things, water in a river, that is being used in profound ways by this man who's just committed to knowing who he is and who he's not. In his commentary on John, this guy named Frederick Dale Bruner said these words. It's kind of like he's trying to, give language to it. So, so in other words, as if he's trying to imagine like what John the Baptist would be saying, he says, in other words, 
If anything divine, picture John saying this, or significant happens through my ministry, it will be because the one whom I herald chooses to use my ministry. I am a voice for the coming one, and I've been given a specific physical instrument, water baptism, to seal my words and to signify the repentance commitment to my words, so I preach and I baptize. But all the rest is up to the one who called me to this, to this ministry of word and sacrament. It's a way of John just saying, listen, I'm not a big deal. Like I know the crowds are coming, but it, doesn't, it ultimately doesn't matter. I do not care one bit. John literally doesn't seem rock. Now, I think about that, and I wish I could declare that, but the ebb and flow in my life is so, like it's so sadly contingent on like how well I think I'm doing, even as we talk about like ministry of the life of the church and all of those things. Like if you're like, oh, I don't really do, like seriously, like just go like, you know, have a conversation with my wife and she'd be like, oh yeah, like Mondays can be great in our home or Mondays can be awful. And maybe not even by Monday, maybe it's Sunday afternoon because I'm just like, woe is me, all is lost, right? Like so many things can happen. And I need to come back again and again and again to like an identity that's in Christ. And I love these words. It's like John just, he gets it. So he understands who Jesus is, he's gonna talk about here in a moment, and he understands who he is. May we be people that really know ourselves. Like we know we're made in the image of God. We've got worth, value, and dignity, and yet we're not the Messiah. We're not sovereign. We don't have to fix everything. We can turn our phone off. We can go to bed, we can watch a movie, we can go for a walk, we can do all of these things and the world will not shut down if you and I stop for a moment. Like how arrogant is it that like, because here's our, here's our common conversation and I'm guilty of this as well. Hey, how are you? I'm busy. Think about this, almost every time we're saying that, we're declaring, I'm really important, I've got a lot going on and I actually am not able to rest because the world needs me. Now we would never be like that outright with it. But I think fundamentally, that's what's going on. I'm busy because I don't actually stop. I believe the lie that it's up to me. And John doesn't seem to buy into that at all. He knows himself. And then there's this line in here. He says, someone stands among you, but you don't know him. It's interesting. There's literally this crowd, there's these conversations that are happening and what he appears to be making reference to is, guys, right here in our midst is Jesus, the one you should be talking to, the one you really should be getting to know, the one who is amazing, the one who is the Messiah, the one who is the prophet, the one who is all of these things that the Old Testament spoke about. He's like, he's right there in your midst. And this is a theme John's gonna unpack for us over and over again. It's this thread that sort of runs through that Jesus is there and people don't see. And I wish I could say, man, those people are nuts. Like they missed it. And then God in his grace, it's like, hey, dum-dum. Like, listen, you miss it. I'm right here in your midst. Jesus is here. Like our access to him. I'm looking to all these other things, hoping they'll bring some sort of satisfaction. And in the midst of it, someone stands among you, but you don't know him. I think these words should be convicting for us. Like, have we missed the presence 
of Jesus. And John is saying, that's where our, direct, like our attention should be directed to. And so let's look how he closes this. Then there's this invitation to know ourselves. But really, as Calvin said in that quote, like wisdom comes from not only knowing yourself, all right, but in knowing God. If you don't have both of those, you're not actually gonna have a life that flourishes. And so what we see in verses 29 to 34 then is this clarity among like who Jesus is. It tells us, I'll read these words one more time. The next day, John saw Jesus. So these conversations have been happening. The next day, he sees Jesus coming toward him and he says, hey, look, here, behold, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's like, guys, this is the one I told you about. After me, a man, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water. So that what? So that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John begins to recount something that has already taken place, the fact that he got to baptize Jesus. And he tells us some of the details, all right? I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he rested on him. I didn't know him who sent me to baptize with water told me the one you see the Holy Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the son of God. And so the remaining time that we have this morning, let me just put a couple things before you. What is happening in this passage is John says, look, as he says, behold, it's an invitation for all of us that the way we're actually going to understand like who we are and our role in the world and all of that is fundamentally we are created to behold. We look to lots of things. We marvel at lots of different things and there are things that God has created that are good gifts. But when we make a good gift in ultimate, it becomes an idol and our life becomes more and more trapped and enslaved by that thing. And God is inviting us to say, will you look and behold Jesus? Have you marveled at Jesus this week? Have you seen Jesus? Have you celebrated what he's done in your life? Have you celebrated his grace? And what we have here when he uses this this word, this language, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he's referencing what throughout the scriptures is a story of substitution. I mean, this is what we celebrate. When we say pointing our community to Jesus, we're not just talking about this man that walked and the things that he taught, though that is hugely important. We're talking about the God-man who willingly laid down his life. It's a reference here to all these stories that the Jewish people would have known about. Like in Genesis chapter 22, Isaac said, Isaac is Abraham's son, and Isaac has, uh, sorry, Abraham has been told to go sacrifice Isaac. And the, it, Isaac says, well, hey dad, I got, there's the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And what is Abraham's response? God himself will, will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked on together. God provides the lamb. God provides the provision. Exodus chapter 12, 21 to 23, God's getting ready to liberate his people. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go select an animal from the flock according to your families. Slaughter the Passover animal. Take a cluster of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and brush the lintel and the two doorposts with some of the blood in the basin. None of you may go out of the door of his house until morning and when the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, he will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your houses to strike you. What's happening again? If you wanna live, there's gonna be blood that needs to be shed. It can either be your blood or it can be the blood of an innocent lamb. That's a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. One more time, Isaiah 53. 
It's speaking of this one that would come, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And it says this, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And here's the language, like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Most animals, if you try and grab a hold of them, all right, I don't know a lot about this, all right, this is not part of my normal day-to-day operations, but what I, what I do imagine to be true is like they will fight you. They do not want you to hold them down, right? Like I see how my dog reacts, even just going to the groomer. It's just like, thing freaks out, like its life is over, right? But a lamb will be just silent. You literally take a knife to its throat and it's just gonna be there. It's telling us something here. It's telling us that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that he willingly, for you and me, paid the penalty. Like, he died in your place and my place. His blood was shed so that ours didn't have to be. He took our place. The wrath of God poured out on him because we had been trying to make a name. Like, we thought we could know ourselves independent of God. That's what's happening in Genesis 3. I'll take the fruit. I want to be God. I want to be like God. I want to do my own thing. We literally said to God, I don't need you, I don't want you, you've created everything I know, but I think you're holding out on me. I mean, imagine, like God had every right to be like, the heck with all of you. And what does instead, what does he do? He sends us his son who lives a sinless life, the life we're called to live, and he dies in our place. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so when John says this, maybe beyond even what he fully comprehended in the moment. He was tying together all of these things, saying, here's the one, behold him, look to him. Church, have you celebrated the reality of the gospel? The more you do that, the more you will actually have a peace, the more you will be grounded, the more you won't be tossed back and forth by circumstances. You will actually know yourself in the way you're supposed to because you'll know that you are a child of the king. You will know that you belong. You will know that God's grace is for you. And so we'll close with this. It's not only a story of substitution, it's a story of sonship. John references Jesus' baptism and said, I saw the spirit descending from heaven. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all telling the same story and they give us different little anecdotes. And one of them that we get, not in the book of John, but in Matthew chapter 11, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter three, is more detail on Jesus' baptism. It says this, and when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove. This is what John is just telling us. But here's the detail that's different. And a voice from heaven, verse 17 said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You wanna have an identity You want to have a stability in your life? It's something I need, I desperately long for. And when I look to Jesus, what begins to happen is I realize what was spoken over him by the Father. You're my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased. Those words now, because of Jesus, are spoken over you. 
And the language of sonship is not to leave the women out. The language of sonship is intentional in the scriptures because in that culture, the sons got the blessing, the sons got the inheritance. And it's a language, it's a call for all, for the sons and daughters, they all get this, those that have been forgiven, that those who have trusted in Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, not in a generic sense, but he takes your sin and my sin. Like I put Jesus on the cross, you put Jesus on the cross. And he willingly went like a lamb. And then what we're told in all of this is a way of John just reminding us what Jesus earned for you is the affection from the father that says, you're now my son, you're my child, and I am well pleased. I know you messed up this past week. I know you got in this fight on the way to church. I know you're gonna do this in the upcoming week. I know all of these things. But if you're in Christ, he's saying, what I see is not your sin, it's not your rebellion, it's not all your screw-ups, I see Jesus. And I'm well pleased. How many of us, if we're honest, are driven, just hoping for those words? Maybe you never heard those in your home growing up. Maybe that's what drives you, I, I don't know. Maybe you had great parents and they, they told you they were proud of you all the time, that, that's awesome. But at the end of the day, there still is going to be an ache because we're gonna say, okay, well my parents told me that, but maybe they're supposed to tell me, tell me that. But what about these people out here? Do you, are they pleased with me? Are they happy? And we just bounce around looking, will you affirm me? And what we have in the scriptures, what we have in the gospel is the God of the universe. Regardless, there may be everybody on the planet saying, I'm not pleased with you, you messed up, you didn't send me that email back, you didn't do this, you messed this up, all right, your whole life's a colossal failure, whatever it happens to be. And yet, your heavenly father can say, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're part of the family. Like he's made that possible. Imagine if we embrace that, if I embrace that, how much it would affect my life, I would be able to rest. I would have a deeper joy. That's the life that Jesus is inviting us into. And so I'll ask you this question. Do you know that you're beloved? If you don't have a confidence in that, it may be because you've actually never trusted in Christ and the invitation today is to trust him. But even for those of us that have trusted, it is a constant battle. And it's why the language of look and behold, what do we do when we gather on Sunday? I hope it's not the only time, but it is a rallying cry to come together and say, we gotta look and behold Jesus. Because I've been looking to so many other things throughout this week and I gotta have my attention recentered and refocused. So would you behold Jesus? Would you hear the words of the Father that because of the finished work of Jesus, you're his child and he's well pleased. So we're gonna respond in a couple of ways. I'm gonna close us in prayer. We're gonna sing this next song and as we're singing, if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to come up and get the communion elements and take them back to your seat. If you're gathered with us at home, you can gather those supplies at home and then I'll come back up after this next song. We'll partake together is this means of grace that God has given to us to remind us of our identity, of what Jesus has secured. So let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your faithfulness and your kindness, your grace. God, in particular, I thank you that for 12 plus years now, uh, this gym has been filled with 
praise to your name and proclamation of the gospel through the words that have been sung and through the scriptures being opened and through the prayers that have been prayed and through participation in this communion meal. And so God, I'm just in awe of that. I just thank you for that reality. God, thank you for the partnership that we've had with the YMCA and continue to have. God, thank you for their graciousness, their hospitality in giving us this space. God, thank you that you have built a church, that a church is uh, not contained to a particular location or to a building, but it is the people of God. And we're thankful that we're your people um, and that you're well pleased with us because of the work of your son. So Holy Spirit, I pray that right now you would lead us as we reflect, lead us in repentance where it's necessary, where it's needed, that we would see all the ways that we've tried to find our identity in something other than the finished work of Christ. And then Holy Spirit, I pray that you would remind us again that we would hear through you that the voice of the Father, that we're the beloved, and that we can quit trying and striving and that we can just rest and we can rejoice in the good news of Jesus. So God, I pray as we sing, as we participate in this meal, I pray in everything that we do, God, that you would get your glory and that we as your people would experience a deep and abiding joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.